When I think of leaders who have impact, I think about those who show integrity and their actions are aligned with their values. I think about those who communicate, engage, storytell to bring to life their vision. I think about those who bring everything back to purpose and put the people they're serving at the heart of decision making. Impactful leadership shouldn't be mistaken for loud leadership. It's not about being super confident, turning up with the jazz hands, putting themselves at the centre of the story. I'm Lee Griffith, a communications strategist, executive coach and all-round champion of leaders who shun the old school stereotypes. I'm here to help you get clear on your strategy, implement some self-leadership and connect with those you serve through your communications so that you can deliver improved organisational performance, engagement and reputation. Sign up to my newsletters to receive even more useful insights into how to be an impactful leader. You can also find out how I can support your organisation to better connect with the people it serves. Visit sundayskies.com to find out more. In today's episode, I interview Kevin McNamara, an NHS chief executive who, in my opinion, typifies all the qualities of an impactful leader. I had to twist his arm to come on the podcast because he didn't want the story to be about him. But of course, that's absolutely why we need to hear what he has to say. We talk about mindset, dealing with transitions and challenges, and the importance of a strong support network amongst many other topics. Enjoy. So I'm delighted to welcome Kevin McNamara, who's Chief Executive currently at Great Western Hospitals. Thank you so much for joining us on the Leaders of Impact podcast, Kevin. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I start every episode with a question to explore what impactful leadership looks like. So I will ask you, what does impactful leadership mean to you? A really good question. Uh, and when I think about the difference that a good leader can make to an organization, to a local community, for me, it is all about what the future can look like. Because actually, good management is about the here and now. That is about just managing the status quo, the transactional elements. And an impactful leader is, is about how we manage the future, how are we going to step into the future in a sense of optimism, a sense of unity as a team, and a sense of curiosity about the sorts of questions we need to ask ourselves that mean that we, we're going to be best placed to, to face some of those challenges. So impact leadership is about that looking to the future rather than the, what's under your nose uh, today. Yeah, I really like that sense of there's often a confusion, isn't there, between leadership and management. And you've framed it well in terms of you're managing in the here and now, but you're leading into the future. So I, quite, I like that distinction. It's one of the things that's a, a, a very big challenge in the NHS because you know, often you're having to firefight issues that, that are today, you know, ambulance queuing, lack of beds, workforce challenges. So actually, how do you create space then as a leader for yourself and for your team to try to, to, to give time to pause, reflect, think about what's to come rather than the, the here and now bit? So it's one of the biggest tensions when I speak to other people in similar roles that they find with their job. Because the focus is so much on on what's happening today rather than what, what it might be like tomorrow. I think it's one of the big the big challenges, particularly for people that work in the public sector, because there isn't much room at the moment to breathe and think about a, a different future. I'm definitely going to come back around to this because I think it's an important thing to explore. But I want to go right back to the beginning and to understand a little bit about what's shaped you as the person that you are today. And I suppose how that might have influenced your leadership approach. 
it's always comes back to different people. You know, I've had the privilege of working in the NHS now for around 20 years, over 20 years. And the NHS is such an inspirational place to work. You see this country at its absolute best. That's not to say that the NHS doesn't have huge amounts of challenges and, uh, and, and things like that. But to be surrounded by people that really want to come to work to try their best to serve their community, I think it's really important. One of the things that has really uh, stuck with me was I had the opportunity to, after university, to go on a, a scholarship to America that was, that was supported by uh, the Rotary Club. And um, the, there was a mantra that they used there that really stuck with me, and it was called service above self. And I remember when I was dropped off at the airport by the family that was hosting me, and I said, when I'm in a position, I'd like to sort of pay back what I've been able to do. And they said, it's not about money, it's about the time that you can give to this. And always remember, it's about service above self. And that really stuck with me. I was really, you know, I was young, uh, impressionable, but it, it's something that I've always come back to in my career choices, my leadership choices. And if I'm in a situation where I'm thinking, okay, I'm making a decision, is, is this about me or is this about the organization? Is this about me or is it about the community? And sometimes that's helped me navigate through some of those difficult choices where I think, oh, hang on a second, no, this is about me. It's therefore the wrong decision to take. So I need to, I need to change my thinking about it. So that, that was a really formative uh, experience for me. And working with some, some uh, leaders that are, are being inspiration, inspirational, working with some leaders that have been less than inspirational, because I think you can learn as much from those people as you can from the inspirational people. The challenge there, you have to be careful that you don't just try and turn yourself into a reverse copy of somebody. So which bits are you going to take away to think, right, I don't want to operate like that, but I don't want to be a reverse copy. I want to be my own person. So I think I've always been somebody that has a degree of imposter syndrome that you know to manage, but that has a healthy element to it because it makes you question your approach, makes you think about wanting to do things differently next time you're in a similar uh, situation. It also makes you think, actually, that you hold these positions and you should hold them very, um, very carefully, you know, and, be, and very respectfully. So for me, it's, it hasn't been about job title. I never had a, an ambition to be a chief executive in the, in the NHS. It happened accidentally. And so one of the things that I've always tried to do is just recognize that, uh, just say yes to opportunities that come up. And those opportunities often aren't bow-tied and look really neat and fun and, and uh, enjoyable. Often the best opportunities in development terms have been the things that have looked like the hardest, most challenging, and sometimes dullest things that I've had to get involved with, but they've taught me far more about myself and, and some of the sort of obvious things that you might want to pursue uh, in, your, in your career path. Mm. So you see yourself as an accidental CEO. How, how did the accident happen? <laughs> um, it, as I say, it was never part of the ambition. So Whenever people you said you've got a, a desire to be a chief exec, I said no. It's it's not where I see myself uh, going. Uh, every, I've never had a career plan, so being really honestly, whenever anybody asks me for a career advice, I say I think I'm the worst person to ask for career advice. I, I've never had a career plan, but in a way, I think actually it served me well at times when not knowing what to do has meant that I've been open to different opportunities, different um, challenges, and things like that. I think sometimes. If you're too prescriptive about where you see yourself, at what level, by what age, I think it can close off opportunities and, and close off doorways that, that otherwise uh, I think could take you in a different path. I've also been really clear in my own mind that um, you know, progress isn't always linear. It isn't always upwards either. 
So some of the choices I've made in career terms where I've taken sorts of side steps or steps down have actually been the things that have helped me accelerate further in terms of my own skill sets. And so uh, back in 2019, um, our, the, the previous chief exec went off on sick leave and I was asked to step in at short notice. Um, and that lasted for a period, an acting up period of uh, almost eight months. And in that time, I was convinced for the first six months, I was convinced I wasn't going to apply for the substantive role. And actually, it was a conversation with my eldest that, that challenged my sort of thinking around the Christmas time. And I thought, actually, what I don't want to do is regret not putting my hat in the ring and thinking, actually, could I have done it? And, uh, and so that's what I did. And then my job was, I was formally announced on the day we started um, having to shut down services for COVID. So it was an odd time, an odd experience. There was no sort of uh, sense of celebration or anything else like that because it was never part of the plan. It just felt like something that, uh, that I needed to do for a very specific set of circumstances at that time, if that makes sense. Mm, it does. Um, what did your eldest say to you? Well, this hospital where I work, where my kids were born. So for me, this has been more than a job. It's absolutely been a real sense of community, a real sense of family. I've got a deep pride of work here. And it's, it, I genuinely feel that pride every day I walk through the doors. Every day I make sure once a day I walk past the, route, the, the place where my, uh, my kids were born. Um, because I think that's a, you know, a great connection. Just reminds you what this, working in the NHS, it is a life and death organization. And so you get the privilege of being able to walk past the maternity unit and see new dads, new mums carrying their newborns out and that sense of excitement and wonder that, you've, that we've played a part in. And then, of course, you see people that are walking into the car park in tears because they've uh, just said goodbye to their, you know, their most precious family member in, in the world. And so that's a real privilege to, to do that. And my daughter challenged me about my thinking around why would I not want to do it? And, and she, she said, you know, I always tell her to sort of make herself uncomfortable, put herself in situations where she might not succeed and things like that. And so it's that perfect bit of parenting where your words come back to haunt you and then you have to do things that you've, you tell your kids to do. And, uh, and it made me think, actually, what, what would, how would I feel? How would you feel if somebody got the job and you felt like you just didn't try? And, um, and I thought, actually, I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to have that regret. Uh, so that's what, what what changed my um, my thinking. It was over a Christmas period, so it was a great opportunity just to to sit and reflect. And I mentioned earlier the importance of reflection in, in the leadership role. Uh, however, you can carve out time to uh, provoke your thinking to sort of ask yourself the uncomfortable questions, and then not get caught up in the answers that sort of get wrapped around a really busy day where you've got free time to really just think about, am I giving up the answer because it's the easy, comfortable solution? Am I giving the, the right answer that is the right thing for, uh, for me, the right thing for the organization? And so, um, so yeah, so she's been very good, uh, good at that. My kids have been a feature of this hospital, uh, uh, coming in on Christmas Eve, coming to our family festivals that we hold and things like that. So, her advice was a really important part of my thinking and, and actually I'm going to be moving to a new uh, trust in the new year and thinking uh, I, I asked them for their opinion about whether I should go for it because I think these sorts of jobs they take a lot out of you they take a lot out of the family as well so it's important that their voice is heard in that and uh, yeah they've given me very good uh, career counsel along the way. I love that maybe she's a careers advisor in waiting. <laughs> So um, very good I want to <laughs> I want to touch 
briefly, I suppose, on your um, progression, is that the right word, in, in your organisation? Because you've been there a long while, as you've said, you you stepped into the opportunity to become chief exec, but you'd held an, a number of roles in that organisation before then. And I'm interested in how you handled those transitions each time and those promotions, because I think often when you talk or I talk with people who have had internal moves, one of those difficulties can be navigating the changing nature of the relationship. So people who are your peers suddenly might be reporting into you, people who were maybe hierarchically more senior now become your peers. So all of that shift and change. What have you learned in your own transitions as you've moved through your organisation? Yes, I've been in this trust now for 14 years and, and that has many positives. It also has some drawbacks because, as you say, there is, there's baggage you carry from previous roles. Some of the corporate memory you carry is really useful in decision making. Um, but you have to be careful that corporate memory doesn't become a sort of its own sort of anchor drag holding the organisation back. Well, the reason it, it is like it is today is because six years ago we did this and therefore it can never be uh, anything different in the future. So I think that's something I'm particularly live to. It's one of the, th- the reasons, Lee, why I'm choosing to, uh, whilst I st- still love this uh, job and love this organisation, to, to move to a new, new trust because I, I recognise that actually if leaders don't change, organisations don't change. So, so and I want the organisation to, to, to continue to grow and thrive. And so each opportunity in all of, in all of these transitions has, has, has been a more work uh, rather than a genuine, this is a great opportunity, here's a, you know, apply for this job, apart from the chief exec job. Uh, and so that willingness to say yes and to try and to test the limits of your skill set and also to find that sweet spot between what you think you're good at and what you think you you enjoy. I think that's where you, you start to get into a groove in a, in a job. And I think really identifying in those early stages of each new job, what two or three things are you going to go after that, that will signal either a, a change in intent, a change in direction, or real impact, I think is really, really important. So people often talk about that 100-day plan. And whilst I wouldn't be prescriptive around that, I think being really thoughtful about what it is you want to go into to, to be able to do. But don't over-promise uh, what you think you're, you're able to deliver. Be really thoughtful about those. The, uh, be realistic about the challenges that you're going to, that you're going to face. I think it's interesting, each transition into a role, uh, the importance of energy and enthusiasm, I think, in building that trust in an organisation. Because I often use the analogy that uh, in these jobs, you, you, we are uh, you know, you're like a pilot on a plane going through turbulence. And so that really calm approach is needed. And I say that's somebody that's an uncomfortable flyer. And once I was on a flight where uh, a steward uh, let out a slight scream when it went through turbulence, and I thought I was convinced the plane was going to go down. And, and it made <laughs> me think about actually those times in organisations, you know, things like COVID, where you can get into sort of panic mode. What's the ripple effect in the organisation deep into the organisation? So it's an analogy that I come back to because I think it is relevant to the types of jobs that we uh, do it takes a while for people to see you differently in your new role you have to just recognize and accept that some people will get there quicker some people will never get there uh, and i'm sure in my own organization there'll be people that will sort of remember me a job or two ago you just have to be uh, accepting and comfortable with that i don't think you need to try to convince people or win people over in that sense i think you can only do do you can only win people over by 
really listening actively in the organization, staying connected, understanding the issues that people are facing and trying to work through them in a, in a very sort of mindful way so that when you leave the job, hopefully the 101 problems you inherited, are, you're leaving a, a different 101 problems. You know, you'll never, these jobs are never complete. They're never finished but you'll have moved some of those things on that have been intractable challenges in the uh, in the organization. And that's what uh, trying to do. And one of the biggest things that we, that I sort of focused on in my early days into this role in transitioning, because you uh, step into a role, particularly in an acting uh, scenario. And as you say, you're all of a sudden you're responsible for your peers, but you're also conscious that you know, in a month's time, you might be back down and amongst your peers. So what's your role in that? So really thinking about how you navigate that, I think, is important. The importance of having a coach to help you sort of unpack some of those sorts of uh, those sorts of uh, challenges. But also thinking, well, what is your job in an acting capacity? Is your job just to keep the lights on and the doors open for the next six months while some substantive arrangement comes in? Or do you actually want to use that time to try to move the organisation on? And one of the big things that I was keen to focus on when I was acting up was uh, around tone, culture, and behavior in the organization. The people and culture agenda is something that really, really energizes me. I, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and it's something that we needed. And, uh, and it was something that the organization was very receptive to uh, at that time. Uh, and in a way, some of those, the, the ability to do that in an organization that you knew where there was, a, there was a, a degree of trust already, that was quite helpful at that time. So as I say, sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it can be a bit of a drawback. But you do really need to go into situations and be really conscious of when it is a drawback. And sometimes you need to declare that in the room to say, actually, my corporate memory, here's what happened six years ago, but it's not going to be helpful in how we navigate forward from this point on. So you've got to be really open to that challenge and challenge yourself uh, in, that, in that space. Mm. And similarly, I suppose you've moved from what would be seen as a, a specialist role into the more generalist you need to be all over all parts of the business what helped you specifically I suppose to make that break away from specialist and to be in the right mindset to be all over the organization it's, it's really interesting because I so I started uh, my career off in, in in comms and corporate affairs type roles really enjoyed the job really enjoyed the people I worked with and what surprises me is there are not more people coming from that sector into more generalist leadership roles. Uh, because if you think about it, the commons role is at the top table. It's in the conversations, whether it's about strategy, the financial sustainability, quality, safety, workforce, all the things that we deal with in the NHS and in other organizations, they will deal with their own sort of equivalents. And so you get to hear the whole story. Not only that, you get to shape the story as well as to how that is fed into the organization. How do we show up when we're talking to stakeholders and things? So I think it's a really privileged job. It gives you lots of access. And, um, and so I'd always, I never had a plan to, to branch out of comms, but I did recognize that it gave you a perspective that meant that you could offer some challenge into different portfolios because you're trying to join the top, the dots up between stories. You can spot inconsistencies with approach issues of credibility, organizational credibility and things like that. And so I, so it's always surprised me that, that there aren't more, so there isn't a clearer ladder through that commons route into more generalist uh, positions. So in a way, Lee, it felt comfortable and it, it felt comfortable doing that. It didn't feel like a real jolt. Now, the first time then you're being asked to, okay, can you 
write and develop the trust strategy rather than just help sort of advise on the trust strategy. You think, okay, the accountability now sits with me. I'm not just a uh, sort of a, an advisor in this space. The accountability is different and you do have to adjust to that accountability. And then, of course, when you're in those direct positions, um, uh, your profile with the board, the visibility, uh, the challenge does, uh, does increase. So, so, so I've, I've felt comfortable with the generalist knowledge and skill set but you have to pay attention to how that accountability, cha- accountability changes with each role uh, that you take on. We've been talking a bit about transitions and transitions internally, and you've, you've touched on the fact that you're going to be leaving shortly to, to join a new organisation. Congratulations on that appointment. I suppose the, the convenient, the easy way would be for you to stay where you are, because as you said, it's your local NHS, you spent many years there. It, it obviously means a lot to you in, in how you've described um, your kind of family connection with the organisation. What were the signs, I suppose, that you needed to, it was time for you to move on to something new? Really good question. And lots of people have asked me this question uh, over the, uh, the past couple of months since I announced that I was leaving. And I've probably given six different answers. Um, so uh, depending on the day of the week. I I always knew that I this place meant more to me than a job. And so I never wanted to be in a position where I uh, was leaving the organization unhappy in the role. And so I'm leaving with a real sense of sadness, which uh, is not entirely comfortable, but I think it means that I, it's the right time because actually I still am in love with this place. I also recognize that the length of time you spend in these roles and spending in an organization like this, to say 40 years, a long time in different roles, there are some things that can turn into wallpaper that you don't notice. So the importance of surrounding yourself with people that are new, fresh perspective, that balance of corporate memory and new ideas, I think is really, really important. And I didn't want to be in a position in a, uh, a year or two's time where I was um, taking, effectively taking value from the organization, holding it back because I was unable to change. I wasn't able to, to adapt and things like that. So it's genuinely out of that as much about the organizational interest as it is about my personal uh, interest uh, in, all of, uh, in all of that. And, um, and we've been spending a lot of time as a team around board and team development. It's a really important thing in these roles to spend time together, to think about how you show up, not as a group of individuals, but as a, as a team. And, um, and through that process, I have, you know, it gives you, in my reflection time, I've thought about uh, what, what can I do to best serve that team? And so there's all of those things, to, all of those things together made me, uh, at the start of the year, if you'd said I'd be leaving by the end of the year, I would have said absolutely not. And then a, an opportunity uh, arises and it started, to, it started to generate some uncomfortable questions in my own mind about, well, what does the future hold? And as somebody who hasn't had that very fixed career plan, I started to think, well, maybe this is that opportunity that earlier in my career I would have automatically pursued. And now, because of a range of reasons, I, I, I risk just being in, the, in that sort of comfort zone uh, of familiarity and, uh, and and connection with an organisation that I've been in, in for a long time. So there's a whole range of things in that, Lee, that, that made me think, okay, uh, if not now, when? And I couldn't really articulate the when clearly mm. enough in my own mind. And how are you handling, I suppose, that leaving one place well and entering another place with the right mindset and perhaps not the baggage? <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it, and and that's the I think the importance of taking advice from people that have done that I think is 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 key. So I've reached out to quite a few people that have gone through the transition in the past year or two and and understand some of the pitfalls around all, all of that. Yeah, I work in a notice period because I didn't want to just uh, leave the organisation, as you say, talk badly or just sort of see see it as well. You know, my future is elsewhere, and therefore the organisation needs to figure uh, the next stages out. I really want to support that internal transition, the acting up that will come as a result of me stepping out. Um, and so there's an obligation and a sense of duty there that I think is really uh, Im- important. I also wanted that time to sort of process the emotion that, that is attached to that change as well, um, because I think if I'd have tried to cut short my notice period and tried to jump in too quickly, I think there would have been some of that uh, uh, emotion tied up in it that would have would have meant that I that I wouldn't necessarily be into the new organisation wholly focused on the new organisation. So you need to sort of go through, I think, that that sort of, uh, I almost say the sort of grieving process. And I don't mean it in that sense, but there is a sort of cycle to just processing your emotions around it, getting yourself ready for it. The opportunity to spend some of this notice period as well to uh, to go to the new organisation, speak to people, list those questions that you just want to sort of clarify in your own mind as you step in there so that I'm not stepping in there on day one having given no thought to uh, where I might want to pay more attention to, where I want to spend my time, who I want to meet with in my first um, uh, month or two because you know, who, who you meet with in, in that initial period sends a really important signal about what's important to you and I wanted to make sure, and I want to make sure that that is uh, that ties to my values. It ties to the things that I see as being uh, important to uh, the, the type of leader that I want to be uh, in all of that. So I'm very fortunate because it's NHS to NHS. I've got you know autonomy and flexibility on this end to spend time. I'm, get, I'm going to observe. Uh, I'm, I'm observing trust board meetings and other things, so I can just sort of see. And, and, and start better understand the part that I can play in that team. Because it's not about the chief exec, it's about the part that you can play in that team. And, uh, and so the, the notice period has been, has been helpful uh, for that. But quite quickly, you also see in your current role how the, uh, the, the power shifts quite quickly. Within 45 minutes of the news being announced, there was somebody from another organisation ringing up saying, when's the job going out? I want to apply. So quite quickly, you have to just get uh. <laughs> recognize that you are sort of a yesterday's person in that respect and there will be some things that you can be helpful to to just guide the organization through the next few months and there are some things you won't be able to to help uh, on because it is wholly about the future and there are there will be other people that pick up the consequences of those decisions uh, and so being clear around that in your own mind i think is really uh really important uh but yeah you're absolutely right i i, I couldn't put it better i've seen people leave organizations badly and it really impacts on the organization it really impacts on there it undermines actually the contribution that they've made and, and so i want to be really really thoughtful about that thank you it's it's an interesting one when you say like being contacted so soon after making the announcement and i've worked in places previously and it's almost been a shock to some people when they've announced that they're leaving because they think that they can't think of the word there's almost a sense of oh they can they can live without me <laughs> they've, they've forgotten me I feel irrelevant already <laughs> I, I think it's uh, you know the, the reality of the um, of organizations like this in any sector I'm sure that in these positions you are dispensable and I think the point at which you start to think you're not I think 
that will breed bad behaviors, bad habits, and uh, it'll impact the organization. You know, when people give you positive feedback about your time here, of course, on the, on the one hand, it's very nice. But I do say to people, and I've said this to quite a few people, that, um, um, that actually, you know, you're, you're going to miss the familiarity. You're not going to miss the sort of unique contribution. So in some respects, actually, what people are missing is like the old pair of slippers. You know how I'll respond to certain things. You know? And so I think you have to be really, uh, really honest with yourself that, that otherwise I, 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 do, I do worry that you can get sucked into that sort of narrative. And actually, none of those things are true. They happen because we've got 5,500 staff that come to work to do, to, to do their best in really challenging circumstances. That's why good things happen. It happens because of a team, not because of an individual. And so I, I think you, recognize, you have to recognize in these, in these jobs, you can, you can set the tone of the organization. You can absolutely have a really real impact on that. But the real success of the organization is down to unleashing that sort of capability that exists right down into the uh, into the front line you also have to accept that whilst you can't you can't lay claim to the successes you are absolutely accountable for the failings and for the things that don't work because that's the nature of uh, of being a chief exec in the in the nhs so i do challenge people generally when they ask me about leaving and uh, and, and when they say nice things it's, it's all motivated it, it, it's all the right motivations but I do challenge them to think around. It's about familiarity. It's not about my unique skill set or anything else like that. Because I, I, I think it's important that people recognise their own contribution to making improvements. Because otherwise, I think you can you can abdicate your own responsibility, your own capability, actually, and your own self belief, and think it's about somebody that sits in a corner office that's that's, that's driving that. I think it's a really important thing about how you instill that self belief in people in, in these roles. And some of the best people I've worked for have been people that even at times when I've thought I'm absolutely at my limit of capability and I feel like I'm about to drown and I shouldn't be in this position, they've been the people that have instilled a huge sense of self-belief that just made you just just go that little bit further and then you get through the other side. I think, I can't believe I actually did that. And that's that for me is, is, is the magic when, you, when you, can be, you can work for somebody like that that can do that. Can we go a little bit more broad again? You've mentioned a couple of times that you came in your first day announced as CEO, you had to close down for COVID. So I'm really interested in what it's been like leading through a pandemic over the last couple of years. But also more recently, there's been a lot of industrial action in the NHS that's been widely publicised. How have you had to approach or adapt your approach, I should say, to those types of challenges? And what have you learned from leading through those crisis points, I suppose? Yeah, it's really interesting, that whole period. In a way, it feels like a lifetime ago, and then in many respects, it feels like yesterday. So it's odd. I think in these roles, you have an odd relationship to what that felt like. One of the things I tried to cling on to in the early days, because in the one hand, you know, you have the imposter sort of voice in your head saying, what are you doing? What are you doing here? Why do you think you can, you can do this job? And then the other part of my internal monologue was actually no one in the NHS, even if you've got 30 years worth of chief tech experience, has dealt with a global pandemic before. So every day in this pandemic is someone's first day on the job. It's a new day for everybody. And all. Yeah, yeah. I've actually found quite a lot of comfort in that because, you, of course, you can pick up the phone to people that have, done, have, uh, have, have got more uh, time under their belt. They will give sort of a leadership perspective, but the precise nature of a pandemic meant that you had to look for new and different ways of, res of responding. 
So in a way, there was comfort at that time in knowing that there were other people going through exactly the same experience. I remember very early on, we had a command and control structure, as you would expect, because the sort of national pandemic. And as you start to hear about the pandemic, there's still part of you that sort of thinks it might not happen here. You sort of can convince yourself, or maybe it's sort of, it'll all sort of fill Peter out before it gets to the UK and things. So you can convince yourself that. And, and the closest I ever like, I've, I've ever sort of had that relationship to is when somebody tells you about personal grief and somebody's going to die and you can convince yourself for some reason that the rules don't apply to that person because they were so special and, and all of those things. And, I, and there's a similar sort of the way your brain works in that situation. But once the reality dawns on you that this is different, you are going to have to take some different decisions. I remember having a conversation with our leadership team, so not just executive directors, our divisional clinicians and, and people like that, about the importance of distributing leadership so actually what we're not going to do in this situation is look to uh, the top of the shop and the exec team for all of the answers because no one's worked through a pandemic before. Also, we have to recognize that some of the people around the table today won't be around the table tomorrow because you know, COVID was starting to move through our ranks as well. Um, and I think that was helpful to, to try to empower, give autonomy. And my only uh, sort, of, sort of prerequisite was just note your decision making, make a record of why you took the decision, record it because you know, you knew even in those early days that it was going to come to a public inquiry and all of those. So you can, uh, and hindsight's a wonderful thing. And of course, there are decisions you would take now compared to then. But I think that recording of decision-making. So those two things for me were, were really helpful. The, the thought that uh, this was the first day on the job for every chief exec uh, in the NHS, and then the importance of distributed leadership and sticking to, uh, to that. So there being no adverse consequence for somebody that made the decision made a decision with the best of intentions with uh, on the information that had available to them that then recorded and that they could they were willing to sort of uh, stand up and justify making sure that there was no advert a week later because things were changing so much you might change that decision and say we need a different approach some of those tricky times when we thought we might run out into ppe that was very um anxiety inducing and this is where you know that analogy i use around being the sort of pilot on aeroplane going through turbulence, that the importance of that calm voice coming out of the cockpit being really important at that time. And so I, I really tried to pay attention to that because the organisation absolutely wouldn't have wanted to see an executive scene really panicking around all of that. So that was, so that was very odd, a very odd time. I think that's probably the best word to, to describe it. We lost some members of staff during that time and that was really... Uh, difficult for staff, really difficult, and actually probably, you know, for the first time you realise how uh, uncomfortable these jobs can be uh, when you're speaking to, you know, the wife of a doctor that's died and and um, and, and all the emotion that that sort of brings up and, and recognise that people are still needing advice and guidance and a steer going through all of that. I mean, I was really, I was really fortunate I didn't get COVID for the first 18 months of pandemic, so I don't know what it would have been like. And how I would have felt, you know, being at distance and, and things like that. I know some people had some really awful experiences of, of that. But in some respects, the clarity of the pandemic, that single mission, that single focus, it galvanizes the staff at work here in a way that nothing ever, uh, ever did before or since. Because other, some of those other less important things fall by the wayside. Liberate, it, it can be quite liberating in that and can be quite energizing. And of course, you know, the consequences of it were huge, but, but it, it provided a clarity. 
And then when you step out of the pandemic and you are back into having to focus on the money, you've got industrial action that's nearly been running for a year now. And the, the, the worry that that will, that even with a settlement, that that might have fundamentally eroded the, the trust within organizations, between professions, between clinicians and managers and things like that. That is a different level of complexity. And in many respects, it's a trickier job to do now than it is navigating through those uh, initial stages of the pandemic. But some of the principles still apply. Uh, distributed leadership, uh, being, you know, trying to sort of hold to, to that, that constancy of purpose. What is it we're here for? Why are we doing what we're trying to do? Now, that is harder when there's lots of other things uh, that you're having to pay attention to as well. But it's still trying to hold the discipline of some of those things. And the importance of, I've, I've always felt this, um, and I've, I've seen it with people I've worked with, you, know, you are only as good as the people that you work with. You're only as good as your direct report. So really paying attention to the skill set that's needed through this next phase of, of complexity, I think is really, really important uh, in all that. And I'm you know, hugely fortunate that I've got a, an incredible team that, that, you can, that you can rely on. So you've got to defer and delegate and acknowledge there are people in the team that will make much better decisions on their specialist area based on their experience and you whether you've got to, to, to relinquish some of that sort of that control. So in many respects, Lee, it's, it's a, a, a more challenging time now in that leadership space because the public are expecting far more from the NHS now than they were during the pandemic. The support has eroded for a range of reasons. Uh, some of that with frustrations around waiting lists that are growing and growing. Uh, that challenge with staff support as well, uh, with industrial action um, and the financial challenges that are that have, have come back really strongly for many, many NHS organisations. It means that you've got to navigate and, and or you've got to spin many more plates than, than, than uh, we had to, to a certain extent during the pandemic. You've bridged nicely, actually, into my, my next question, which was around the fact that everyone does have a view on the NHS because it affects them. Everyone's going to come into contact with the NHS in some way, shape or form at some point in their life. But it's also heavily regulated, heavily politicised, all of those kind of things. And that must bring a lot of responsibility for you as the accountable officer, I'm sure, possibly quite a lot of pressure too so how do you navigate that it's an interesting one because i've been asked this a few times by people that i've been i've known in the nhs for a long time and they've gone down different career paths and it's not that you don't acknowledge the pressure you have to acknowledge it but i think you have to be careful with how much you let it into your headspace because I think it can lead to paralysis. It can make you think, actually, this is too big for anyone, you know, anybody to, to be able to, to contend with. So you have to be really careful about how you, how you stay live to it. You stay live to the accountability, the importance of getting it right for people, but not let that be so overwhelming that, it, that you can't then make a decision. You are um, you're generating you know, lots of anxiety and things like that. And it's interesting because some of the more anxiety-inducing parts of the role have often been the things that I think if I would speak to somebody externally, they'd say, oh, I wouldn't have thought that would be the big thing. But they are often the small things often become the big thing in a job like this, or it often tells you something about it. So I mentioned about the loss of members of staff during the pandemic. And, and of course, that's a huge, huge thing. 
But it's interesting because I've spent more time reflecting about that than some other aspects of the pandemic, because that feels deeply personal. So I think you have to be careful about how much you let it into your into your head headspace and have a healthy uh, approach uh, to it. You do have to pay attention to those things that you are that you really need to be. This is serious. We need to uh, be leaning uh, into this versus those things that you know. Now, actually, that is for you. That's for your role. You can manage that. I feel confident in that. Because the challenge is often things filter up the organization. Everything can be presented as equal priority. And I think, obviously, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. And, uh, and not everything is equal risk uh, either. The, the bit I worry about is how do we maintain the confidence of the public? You know, we exist because people will, uh, continue, want to support the NHS, want to pay their taxes into the NHS, things like that. So my, my bigger worry is a sort of an existential one, really, about how do you maintain that confidence? And obviously, I can't control that beyond the area that I'm responsible for. But what I can do is try to make sure that the voice of the people of uh, Swindon is in our thinking when we're trying to do things. That when we're looking at waiting lists, we're not just seeing the fact that the waiting list has doubled since the start of the pandemic. We're really thinking about, well, who is on that waiting list? What does that look like for a child? Uh, on that waiting list? What does that look like with somebody with a learning disability on that waiting list? So really trying to get behind the numbers. That can be easier said than done sometimes, but really trying to hold ourselves to account and asking ourselves really uncomfortable, challenging questions about what could we do differently? What could we do better? Because people uh, people depend on it. Remember, Lee, and I know from your background, you'll have experienced this, but in an organisation like this, the vast majority of people work here for a very, very long time. The vast majority of people, this is their local hospital. The vast majority of people, it's where their kids and their grandkids, their brothers and sisters will come for treatment. So for many people, it's a very personal and there's a personal need for this organisation to, to be as good as it can be and, and for us to respond to those, those sorts of challenges. One of the things that I do draw on that I've always found helpful in is I don't know whether you've ever come across the authority presence and impact model, and it's a framework of just uh, helping you sort of think about things. And, and so that has been quite helpful to me over time to give, to try to breed, you know, my own confidence when making decisions, making sure that they're aligned to sort of the values that sit behind uh, all of that. And that, so that's been quite a helpful tool in sometimes crowding out that voice in your head that can sort of just get you into a, a difficult sort of headspace and, and not necessarily help the organisation. So, so that's, that's something I often talk to people about uh, and encourage them to look at because it can be really helpful, say, building confidence in that decision-making uh, that you have to do in a job like this. So you've mentioned a few times the being in the right headspace, you've talked a, a couple of times around imposter syndrome that you felt throughout your career. I suppose, how, how else are you creating the right conditions for you to manage some of that stuff so that you know that you're not listening to the imposter or, or whatever else might be going on? Yeah, it's, um, uh, and it's odd sometimes. Yeah, I, I always think actually there's no such thing as a normal person, is there really? But, you know, it, I think it's entirely healthy to have that sort of voice because I think it does make you question yourself and, and how you can do better and do differently. But it, it's still a voice that you have to choose when to listen to it and choose when not to listen to it. So you still have to have some, some control over, uh, over that. I think it's often the imposter syndrome is a much louder internal monologue for people than it is a sort of an external projection. So people don't see what you are thinking, do they, in that space? 
So I think, so I don't see it as entirely unhealthy uh, in that. You can notice the times in yourself when it comes, you know, and it can be at times of more acute pressure or tiredness and things like that. So I think spotting the signals for yourself as to when this is likely to come and then you'll, you'll manage uh, not even, not coping mechanisms because actually that sounds too sort of too problematic. But how do you manage that? How do you manage that for I've invested a lot of time in the, the, the sort of development side. So setting aside reflection space, setting aside reading time to really think about and reading how do other people manage some of those sorts of things, whether it is imposters, imposter syndrome or something else, I think it's really important to, to look for new ways because I often think it's sort of like going to the gym and using the same bit of equipment every time. After a while, you plateau, you don't sort of develop, you don't improve. So actually, what's the new bit of equipment you're going to need to use to develop uh, that different muscle? Lee, I'm saying that as if I go to the gym every day, I really don't, to be 100% clear. But it's the same sort of thought process where you, where I think you have to look for new ways continually to, to uh, manage that. The importance of a network of support. So I've got a fantastic network of people in uh, different roles in the NHS that I know I can pick up the phone to on the drive home from work today to talk through an issue, to get a perspective, to get a common sense check and challenge on, you know, this isn't a big deal, all of those things. And to do that in a way that's reciprocal. So actually me being available to them when they need that, I think it's so important. I used to view networking through the wrong lens. I used to think it was for people that wanted to build relationships so they could further their career. For me, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Now I see the importance of networking is that support network, um, that ability to draw on expertise of people that have been there, done that, have, have tried it, have learned the mistakes, have got the scars. But you don't just draw on that. You've got to put something into that as well to make sure that you are contributing to, to, to them and their life. And, and, and I've got some, a real privilege to, to, to know some of the people that I've got in, in the network. That, that I can talk to. So those those are a couple of really, really important things. And then the final thing I think is not everything is, not every decision you make, not everything that you do is life and death. And now, of course, we work in an organization that what, that is that sees those sort of ends of, you know, the, the start and end of life. But many decisions that we you take won't have those sorts of consequences. And drawing on the confidence that your experience has given you in your personal and professional life. So thinking about those very difficult experiences that you've had in your personal life and thinking, when I got through those, I could, de- I could deal with that. This issue I'm dealing with today is less than that in terms of consequence. If I dealt with that, I can deal with this. And having that as a very quick thought process sometimes, and I sort of thinking, okay, which way do I go? What do I do? Has been quite a helpful thought process to be at some of those those more challenging uh, times and, and and there will be times when you know, where it can be helpful to be a bit more open with people about what you're thinking why you're feeling and and, and so that people recognize uh, that these aren't straightforward decisions they are decisions that sort of can can weigh on you this is how you how you manage it so you've got to have a healthy respect to it um Lee. otherwise if you let the doors open too much, it'll come flooded in, and I think that's where you can you could cause yourself some some harm ultimately. Yeah, I think there's some really practical advice and steps there that would that anyone can take from really and build their own little toolkit, as it were. So my final question is one that I ask everyone as well, and it's what's the one piece of advice you would give to someone who is aspiring to being CEO? 
Only one, Lee. Only one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a really tricky one. I'm a big believer in the people you spend time with are the people you become. And that's, I think that's a lesson for life. You know, if you want to be happy, surround yourself by happy people. If you want to be ambitious, surround yourself by ambitious people. I think that applies in the workplace as well. And I mentioned that, you, uh, that you're only as, uh, as good as your direct reports and the people around you. So think carefully about the people you surround yourself with in a workplace uh, because they, they will have a big bearing on the professional success, but also your mental outlook in life. Fantastic. Now, I shouldn't do this because it was one piece of advice, but you've triggered a follow up question, if I may, <laughs> um, which is I completely agree with you about being conscious and intentional in who you surround yourself with. But there's a balance, isn't there, about making sure you don't create a, an echo chamber around you. So I'm, so I'm interested how you make sure that you get that diversity in the support that you have to make sure and, and how you test that, I suppose. Yeah, it's a really good uh, challenge, Lee. And, um, and, and so I think you can still have people that are challenging but happy. So I think you can still have people that are willing to ask the uncomfortable questions but positive. And so some of the so characteristics, I think, of, the, of the, the person, I think, can be consistent. But you're absolutely right. That diversity of thought be, it, uh, being important. I always used to think, actually, one of the real skills in a job is to say yes. And I mean, yes to new opportunity, yes to new challenges, not in a yes, boss, you are, uh, you are correct. So offering up an environment, trying to create an environment where people feel able to, to, to say what they think. And to deal with conflict in a really healthy way, I think, is, is, is the key to success in all that. So uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think paying attention to the bits that you are good at, the bits that you are not good at, your own biases, your own blind spots, and being willing to sort of hold yourself to account in that to say, well, actually, I need somebody then in the team that is willing to pick me up on that if I slip into that way of thinking. I think it's really poorly easier said than done because sometimes that is really uncomfortable. But we all have blind spots. I think more of a uh, if we had more of a 360 process uh, that focused on blind spots and people's projection back to you as to what your blind spots are rather than just general feedback, I think that could be really quite helpful to um uh, to individuals uh, to pay attention to where they might be slipping into a very uh, formulate sort of pattern of thinking that might not necessarily be uh, what the organisation needs. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Um, there's loads in that, I think, for, for anybody who's interested in leadership, who is on their own leadership journey and, and trying to be more critical, I suppose, of the impact they make. If people want to connect with you, if they want to feedback on, you know, the inspiration that you've given them, where, how's the best way? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter? What's the best way to? Yeah, out? not a big user of uh, LinkedIn, but uh, I do use Twitter. So if people want to uh, reach out, that's uh, Kevin underscore McNamara one. But Lee, what, what I've said, you know, none of it is fact. It's just a perspective. And, uh, and as I say, still... Uh, you know, still very much a work in progress and continuing trying to sort of think about what I could do differently. If you enjoyed 
enjoyed this episode, please let me know on Apple Podcasts or on your app of choice and drop me a line over on LinkedIn. You can find me at Lee Griffith. I'll be back with the next episode in two weeks time. So in the meantime, remember to sign up to my newsletter at sundayskies.com for further insights on how to lead with impact. Until next time. Thank you.